Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 236, The Burning of Durfal Gadarn. I have a special sponsor for a while I'd like to tell you about, and in fact, I'm wearing at this very moment. These are super cool, and I mean super cool, Studio Regent wireless headphones of the on-the-ear type, if you know what I mean. Basically, they cover your ears. They sound as clear as a bell. They are so easy to use after all that wire-based stuff I had to worry about all the time. And actually, they look great too. I look great. I think they may be my favourite bit of kit, and I love them. Plus, there's a special 15% discount for you all. Just go to studiosweden.com and enter England when you order. Plus, Agora Podcast of the Month is Beyond the Big Screen, which looks at those history films we love and hate in equal measure. What are the real facts behind the film? That sort of stuff. So, Beyond the Big Screen, available at a podcatcher near you. Just very quickly then, everyone, bit of housekeeping. I thought it'd be good to give you a general plan, because I'm very conscious that I've not done anything of social daily life for ages and ages, nor indeed economic stuff. So, the plan is that I get to the end of Henry's reign, which is, after all, pretty much half the way through the 16th century, and then we'll take a break from all the political stuff. I figure that'll be around April time, but do not, under any circumstances, hold your breath. The history of my promises, podcast timing-wise, is a sad litany of failure and broken dreams. In the more immediate future, this week, ladies and gentlemen, is a game of two halves, really, Jim. We have the story of Jane Seymour and some very good news for Henry. And we return to religion, to the Bishop's Book, and the burning of a chap called Darvel Gadan. Let us start, though, with childbirth. And you might like to know also, actually, that next week on the Shedcasts, we have a study of Thomas Cromwell, along with a member's quiz and another coin giveaway for quizzes. 
This is broadly because Shane was gutted at not winning last time. Anyway, Jane. Queen Jane had been very distressed by the pilgrimage of grace, famously throwing herself on her knees before Henry to beg him to halt the destruction of the monasteries. Despite the later evangelism of her family, the Seymours, Jane's own religious views appeared to have been very conservative. Her views on this occasion seem to have been brushed aside, ignored, and there doesn't seem to have been any evidence of an intercession of the Queen's mercy for the pilgrims, no repeat of Philippa of Hainault's tour de force outside the walls of Calais, or Catherine of Aragon's in London with Henry indeed. Instead, Henry had them hung as high as could be hung, and then asked for a little bit higher. However, it appears that Jane was able to spread a little joy, royal family-wise. Mary was now at least fully integrated back into court life, and they seem to have hit it off pretty well. Not saying she didn't like Elizabeth as well, but Elizabeth is just four, so precocious though she might have been, a conversation was more limited. Incidentally, Jane is attributed to having generally a much more restrained approach to clothing and display than Anne, banning French hoods for the more sober English style, for example. But I might note that at her first official occasion as Queen, she wore a get-up with 560 pearls sewn into them, and that is a lot of pearl. So don't imagine she's not a fully paid-up, card-carrying, slay-in-the-aisles Tudor. She absolutely is. Anyway, although Henry's hypochondria had meant that her coronation had been postponed on the grounds that Westminster had suffered a spot of plague, her first Christmas seems to have been happy enough. It appears that the Thames froze solid, which is a bit of a belter, chilly or what. But Jane did the necessary as far as celebrations were concerned. Now this got me distracted for a moment into those frost fairs, as they were called, distracted into wondering how cold it would need to be for the Thames to freeze. I then found out a series of dodgy facts, which I'm going to give you now, Okay? It sounds as though frost fairs were reasonably regular during the Little Ice Age. For reference, we might take the Little Ice Age with the broadest parameters as being around 1350 to around 1850. Now, when I say regular, we're talking of something like one frost fair in every 10 years, that sort of thing. In the very last fair on the Thames, which was 1814, the average monthly temperature in January was minus 2.7 degrees Celsius. Well... This was a little disappointing, I have to say. I mean, it certainly sounds well into parky territory, but I imagine anyone living in a really cold place would laugh in a hollow, mocking kind of way. Anyway, coldest ever was 3.1 degrees average for January, and this happened in 1795, when 21.1 degrees below freezing was the lowest recorded temperature. But the point everyone made was that it would never happen again, because back then there was no embankment and therefore the Thames was much wider and much slower. So there you go. Sorry, thought you'd want to know. So, as I say, there was a lovely frost fair, and there was talk that the king would fulfil his promise to the pilgrims to carry out a parliament at York with the coronation for the queen at the same time. But then, wonder of wonders, Jane was able to announce in February 1537 that she was pregnant. Obviously, everyone was super excited, but Henry also spotted an opportunity as well and promptly cancelled the Northern Progress and along with it any prospect of a Northern Parliament, which went the way of all the promises made to the pilgrims, essentially. He claimed to be worried that if he was in the North, away from Jane, she might take fright and miscarry. I leave it to you to attribute either a lack of generosity or genuine solicitude. Could be the latter, actually, you know, let's be nice. Either way, he also seems to have been rather poorly, which is what he claims in his letter to Norfolk. To be frank with you, which you must keep to yourself, a humour has fallen into our legs, 
and our physicians advise us not to go so far in the heat of the year, even for this reason only. At some point we will discuss Henry's general health, always fertile ground, but let's save that up for a rainy day. The final theory about why Henry cancelled the progress in the north from one author is that it was all very well to be brave sitting in London when the rebellion was up in the north, but that the prospect of travelling into Yorkshire was just too scary for him and he bottled it. Meanwhile, it must have been like living in a goldfish bowl for Jane. I imagine every eye would have been fixed firmly on her midriff. She, meanwhile, developed a pash for cucumbers, would you believe, and her new best friend, Princess Mary, rushed out and had cucumbers delivered to her queen's door. Which, in another idle moment, got me to thinking about the appalling abomination that is the cucumber. And I discovered that the rumour is that cucumbers, although having been around for ages in England, in around 1300 had fallen out of use and only recently reappeared in the 16th century. Though, having said that, the cucumber does appear in the Wycliffe Bible. In words, you know, not pressed between the pages or something, in around 1382. So you might wonder if the cucumber had really been banished at all. But apparently we then had a rather difficult relationship with the things in the 17th century when they get called cowcumbers, good only for cows and actively dangerous to the health. Samuel Pepys relates how Mr Newborn is dead of eating cowcumbers. And then we get to Samuel Johnson, who is so often right about stuff, albeit in a rather curmudgeonly way, and never more right than when he said, A cucumber should be well sliced, dressed with pepper and vinegar, and then thrown out as good for nothing. I differ from the good Johnson only in the first stage. Just miss that bit out and chuck them straight into the compost heap. But you didn't come to the history of England to hear about my fear and loathing of cucumbers. So, on Sunday the 16th of September, 1537, Jane and her ladies took to the specially prepared chambers at the Palace of Hampton Court. As I said, there was plague in London, so Henry took off to the nearby palace at Esher just to make sure there'd be fewer potentially plague-ridden courtiers tramping all over the place. He also sent William Butts, his personal physician, to attend Jane, which was most unusual. This was normally, very strictly, a women-only occasion. And then, everyone waited for a prince, as they'd done so many times before. When it started, for two days and three nights, poor Jane's labour dragged on. But eventually, at two o'clock in the morning of the 12th of October, she delivered of a healthy baby. There has been a rumour that a caesarean section was needed, which is almost certainly not true. In 16th century England, that would have meant almost certain death for Jane. Anyway, good Lord, if it wasn't a boy. After all this fuss, we finally have a prince, and a perfectly healthy one at that. And Jane appeared to be doing absolutely fine too, so everyone was happy, happy, happy. The king announced it to the world. 2,000 shots were fired from the Tower of London. There were celebrations all over the country in towns and villages. Everyone went potty. On the 15th of October, there was a lavish and grand christening ceremony. Both 21-year-old Mary and 4-year-old Elizabeth were there, and Mary did not give a whisper to the effect that in the eyes of the papacy, the young prince, christened Edward, was no more legitimate than Princess Elizabeth. It would have been rude anyway. Cranmer and the Duke of Norfolk were among the godparents and probably glowered at each other across their doctrinal divide. Jane herself was well enough to sit wrapped up nice and warmly in the anteroom to the chapel where the christening took place, and her uncle, Edward Seymour, was made Earl of Hertford to mark the occasion. It's an interesting wrinkle that neither of Jane's uncles, 
Edward Seymour or Thomas Seymour, are seen mixing it with the political movers and shakers during this time. As a family, the Seymours seem to have been pretty tractable and unargumentative, at least until Henry's death approached and changed the board completely. So everything was going swimmingly, when suddenly, from the 18th of October, the Queen sickened and developed a fever. Dr Butts was again dispatched from the King, but wasn't able to make any impact, and Jane's condition worsened. It got worse and worse, until by the 24th the Earl of Rutland reported she was bleeding heavily, extreme unction was applied, and Jane was dead before midnight of the 24th of October. Jane probably died from a bacterial infection caused by poor hygiene, developing into septicemia, though it's been suggested as well that she wasn't fully delivered of her placenta. Of course, contemporaries knew nothing of this, and Tudor medical theories were applied instead. Cromwell, for example, he suggested that it was the fault of them that were about her, which suffered her to take great cold and to eat things that her fantasy and sickness called for. So, the finger of suspicion is still pointing at you, Mr Cucumber. There were slightly conflicting reports about how Henry took the news. John Wallop reported that the King was in good health and merry as a widower may be, while others suggested he took it a little harder. And of none in the realm was it more heavilier taken than of the king's majesty himself, whose death caused the king immediately to remove into Westminster, where he mourned, and kept himself close and secret a great while. But either way, Jane's body was embalmed and lay sealed in lead and a wooden coffin in the presence chamber at Hampton Court to the end of October, while a permanent vigil was maintained and the royal family wore their traditional dark blue of mourning. And indeed, Jane's early death after delivering her husband's heart's desire meant that her reputation would avoid the scathing that Anne's and Catherine's suffered. In that respect, at least, her death was a good career move. Who knows if it really was Jane that was closest to Henry's heart, but it was next to her that he would choose to be buried. The show must, of course, go on. English diplomats were soon scurrying all over Europe, to France and Germany in particular, flogging the USPs of their newly eligible bachelor roll-up, roll-up, three careful owners, slightly battered condition and all that. The young Edward, meanwhile, appears to have thrived, and he showed no sign of being the sickly child he's often been presented as. He was kept at Hampton Court, away from the diseases of the capital, and no molly could have been more coddled. By and large, Henry was a pretty absent father, as tradition and the mores of the time expected of a king. So that's not to say that he felt no affection for the lad, that's just how it went. And there were some exceptions. In 1538, he spent the day with Edward, dallying with him in his arms a long space, and so holding him in a window to the sight and great comfort of all the people. The Princess Mary, on the other hand, was a regular visitor to the nursery and seems to have been full of affection for her little half-brother, and it was an affection that Edward was to return as he grew older, solemnly writing to Mary at one stage the words, Love you most. Again, as was standard, he was brought up amongst women for his first years, and the principal mistress of his household, which cost an impressive £6,500 a year, by the way, about two million quid a year, was one lady, Margaret Bryan. Margaret Bryan is someone who must have had more influence in the background on English politics than she's ever given credit for, since she raised all three of Henry's children in their early years, all three of whom were, of course, to rule. Some of her letters survive, including plenty to Cromwell, and they're full of two things, really. 
a love of and excitement in the various goings-on of her royal charges, you know, teething, how precocious they are and all that sort of thing, and naked terror at the goings-on of politics. This was typified in the occasion that, while she was looking after Elizabeth, she moved from heir to the throne with a furious and uncooperative Princess Mary in attendance to a status as a penniless bastard. It was up and down in spades. She also happened to be the mother to Francis Bryan, the king's companion and vicar of hell. But Margaret herself managed to make it all the way through to a grand old age of 84. OK then, enough of the cycle of life, childbirth, death of parents, all far too happy. Let's get back to the debate and the conflict that was religion. So while the threat of the pilgrimage of grace was both real and present, in January 1537, Henry called together a great council of notables to discuss possible responses. And from that discussion came a commission to the vice-gerund, one Thomas Cromwell, to lead a discussion of the ten articles we heard about a couple of episodes ago. Now, the tales of the reformers were up. They might have lost the advocacy of Anne Boleyn, but once the pilgrimage had crashed and burned in a welter of public hangings, the conservative spirits were headed dumpwards, and evangelicals were determined to make the most of the presence of Cromwell and Cranmer, a period of supremacy and influence for the evangelical cause that would not be repeated until the reign of Edward VI. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Until the day of his death, Henry would be continually wound up by the flood of debate around religion. You get the impression he couldn't quite understand why people just wouldn't pipe down and stop fussing. So the job of the committee was to set quietness in the church. We'd had the ten articles, essentially, and that hadn't done the job, so now what was required was a statement of the faith of Henry's middle way a collection of prayers and readings and sermons that would explain and expand and reinforce the doctrine of the Ten Articles. And that would all sort it out, and everybody would relax. Oh, and while we're on it, the golden rule was that anything that went in the resulting publication from the committee must have scriptural authority behind it. Well, that sounds easy, doesn't it? Unfortunately, while in the words of the great theologian Douglas Adams, it is a mistake to think you can solve any major problems just with potatoes, that might have been a better solution than locking away the English bishops under the chairmanship of the vice-gerund and archbishop of Canterbury. It had the potential to get as brutal as the celastic armour fiends of Stitterax, aggressive in the way that only an English bishop can get aggressive, with the menacing clink of the teacup, though granted there was neither potato nor tea available in 1537, it has to be said. I'd have found being at these meetings absolutely fascinating, a sort of fly on the wall if you like. There were 46 divines there, mainly bishops and archdeacons, and significantly, and the significance was not lost at the time either, no abbots or priors were invited. 
There were essentially two teams, and it appears to have been a mix of earnest good intentions and academic discussion, and a determination to win a battle which was, after all, for the very highest of stakes possible, the eternal souls of the English people. The Conservative team was at a most serious disadvantage. It was lacking one of its cleverest, most political and most ruthless members, Stephen Gardiner, Bishop of Winchester. He was still on probation with the King after his faux pas in arguing against the submission of the clergy. So, He was away in France on diplomatic duty, trying to get back into the king's good books, working, as he might have sung to Henry had he been a spinner, his way back to you, Babe. Though calling Henry Babe would probably be a mistake. But they did have other long-serving heavy hitters. Cuthbert Tunstall, Bishop of Durham, a committed conservative who'd been talked around by Henry VIII to support the royal supremacy. Tunstall would survive all the way through to Elizabeth I. A.F. Pollard would describe him as one of the most consistent and honourable in the 16th century. Edward Lee, meanwhile, Archbishop of York, was lucky to be alive after protesting less than he might have done against the pilgrimage of grace. He was in an odd position, profoundly conservative, but at the same time profoundly supportive of Cromwell, who had defended him. He's a reminder that nothing was quite black and white. There was no line drawn across Lambeth Palace. These people wanted an answer in an area of debate where compromise was painfully difficult. I think what I'm trying to express is sympathy. Bishop Stokesley, Bishop of London on the other hand, was a good deal less emollient than some of the others. And then on the other side, on the evangelical side, were surefire, hardwired, fire and brimstone evangelicals like Hugh Latimer, and the more politically orientated Edward Fox, Bishop of Hereford, who became the de facto leader of the evangelicals in the discussion. Cranmer formally, I suppose, should have stood as a neutral above the different factions as primate of England. I think it's fair to say that he did no such thing. In the end, who can blame him? This isn't simple politics, not just life and death stuff. This is the immortal soul we're talking about here. You just can't get this wrong. Let me give you a couple of quotes to give you a flavour of this agonised theological debate that stretched on through days and weeks at Lambeth Palace, the London resident of the Archbishop of Canterbury, then and now. Here's one from the Conservative Stephen Gardiner, relating what his friends told him of the discussions when he returned from France to pick up the fight once more. It was showed me that Bishop Stokesley, God have mercy on his soul, after he had stiffly withstand many things, and much stoutness had been between him and the Bishop of Hereford, whose soul God pardon. Then Bishop Stokesley would somewhat relent in the form, as Bishop Fox did the like, and then, as it were in a mean, each pair, by placing some words by special marks, with a certain understanding protested, the article went forth, and so to a new article, and so from one to another. Line by line, word by word, the new primer was hammered out, sweat and blood in every line. The second quote comes from the end of July, as the Synod was still talking but finally coming to an end of their work. It comes from the fiercely evangelical Hugh Latimer, now Bishop of Worcester, as a result of the patronage of Anne Boleyn, whose very position as Bishop of Worcester was a sign of the progress of the evangelical cause, under Archbishop Wareham, he had come close to being convicted for heresy. Latimer was not one of nature's compromises. As for myself, I can nothing else but pray God that when it be done, it be well and sufficiently done, so that we shall not need to have any more such things. 
for verily, for my part, I had liever be poor parson of poor Kington again than to continue thus as Bishop of Worcester. Forsooth, it is a troublesome thing to agree upon a doctrine in things of such controversy, with judgments of such diversity. Every man, I trust, meaning well, yet not all meaning one way. It's a lovely quote. The full mental and physical exhaustion seeps between the lines, the antagonism and yet the need and desire to reach a conclusion. The result of all this pain was a publication of articles, sermons, prayers and so on, gathered into something called the Institution of a Christian Man, known then and since as the Bishop's Book. The super summary is that the bishop's book was a sort of one-all draw between evangelicals and conservatives, maybe the evangelicals winning on penalties in extra time. The ten articles had been such a disaster for conservatives because not all the seven sacraments had appeared in them. That would not have been possible in a comprehensive primer like the bishop's book anyway, and so they were back, and the conservatives were cock-a-hoop about that. But the evangelicals were equally delighted that the king's command to include only things with scriptural authority had been honoured, despite Bishop Stokesley's determination from the beginning to retain the traditional assumption of the equal authority of the Catholic tradition and church fathers. And for the evangelicals, the four sacraments that had been excluded from the Ten Articles were back in, as I say, but were relegated to an explicitly lesser position in the bishop's book. There was one very significant change which would find further expression very soon. Although the use of images were not specifically banned, there was heavy criticism of those people who were more ready with their substance to deck dead images gorgeously and gloriously than with the same to help poor Christian people, the quick and lively images of God. The Bishop's Book can seem like a rather nuanced academic debate which allowed every traditional aspect of religion to continue. In fact, one Conservative priest triumphantly said the very thing at the time. Cromwell's answer to the priest stands as a comment on what had changed, in fact. They shall well perceive that purgatory, pilgrimages, praying to saints, images, holy bread, holy water, holy days, merits, works, ceremony and such other may not be restored to their late accustomed abuses. The bishop's book was rather waved through by the king. He allowed it to be published without comment, saying that he trusted his bishops, in all likelihood because his full attention was focused on his wife and forthcoming son. The bishop's book was published and reprinted five times in 1537 alone. Cranmer and Cromwell had another triumph under their collective belt, and soon had yet another because in the same year, Cromwell showed the king the Matthew Bible, an updated version of the Bible that was still largely Tyndale's translation with the Old Testament completed by Miles Coverdale. And the king gave his permission for the Bible in English to be sold throughout England. Now this was a major victory. Here it now was, freely available to all, the Bible in English. And if you want to know more about Tyndale and the English Bible, there is an entire episode in the Shedcast, so roll up, roll up, and join at thehistoryofengland.co.uk. I think that's product placement, is it not? However, Henry would return to the bishop's book, and in January 1538, he passed to Cranmer a long list of changes and amendations and comments. This is a really interesting exchange. It tells us some things about Henry that no one should doubt his intelligence and quickness of mind and ability when he chose to engage fully with the detail. The fact that he often did not was a matter of choice 
not a matter of ability. He loved his theology, but his theology was a rather wild mix of late medieval Catholicism, so extreme sometimes that even conservative bishops wouldn't follow him, and shards of evangelicalism. It is unsurprising that England was confused about what it should believe, because so was its king by all accounts. Cranmer's response is also interesting. This is a man who has a reputation of being a worshipper of the role of the prince and incredibly compliant to Henry's wishes, with more than a suggestion of principle bending. But his response to Henry's comments are very straightforward and confrontational, with no more than a hint of pill-sugaring. Cranmer was perfectly capable of standing up to the king when he chose, is the message I took from it. Even more oddly, it did no good. Henry, supreme head of the English church, retained most of his changes that he'd suggested and they were all written up into a neat scribal copy and then filed somewhere under B1N while the bishop's book went merrily on as it was. So good golly, Miss Molly. Essentially, the supreme head knew what theology he wanted his church to espouse and teach, but no one else got to know. I think odd seems an appropriately understated word. There was no reprieve, though, for the institutions that represented more than any other the evangelicals' exasperation with the love of images, display, salvation by good works and purgatory. Because from January 1538, Cromwell launched an all-out assault on any form of what he might call idolatry. He ordered statues, roods and images be destroyed in churches and religious houses. His commissioners scoured the country for relics and shrines. Maybe even more than the dissolution, this would be what had the biggest impact on people. One simple and ever-present example, people could no longer light a candle in front of images. Cromwell was always aware of the power of propaganda. He made conscious efforts to inform widely about what he was doing, what he wanted. He used printing presses to produce pamphlets. He used his office as vice-gerund to make sure that at pulpits throughout England the royal supremacy was preached. So now he ran a campaign to discredit the remaining large monasteries and monasticism in general through their most vulnerable practices, the veneration of relics. Notorious examples of relics were brought to London and loudly proclaimed to be fakes. The famous Rood of Grace at Boxley Abbey in Kent, which comprised a miraculous talking crucifix, was revealed to be a puppet operated by certain engines and old wire with old rotten sticks in the back of same. The greatest shrines in the country were destroyed. The shrines of Our Lady of Walsingham and Ipswich were brought to London and burnt. And near the end of 1538, England's greatest shrine of all was destroyed. The shrine of Thomas Becket, quite possibly the richest in Europe. It was dismantled with the jewels and gold transported to London and the King in 26 cartloads. Bishop Becket, as he was now to be called, had a hatchet job done on his reputation by Cromwell as well, who rewrote history, casting Becket as nothing more than a traitor. Meanwhile, his bones were brought out, burned, and the ashes were blown into the countryside of Kent from a cannon. The campaign against images and pilgrimage is riddled with extraordinary events such as this, the most extraordinary events, none more bizarre to the modern eye than the incident of the burning of Durfal Kadan in May 1538. And nothing could bring home more convincingly that the past is a foreign country than the burning of said St. Durfal. Now, you're thinking, oh, poor old Durfal. Actually, you should probably reserve your sympathy for an observant friar instead called John Forrest, 
Therefore, Gadam was actually a saint long dead, and the object to which the evangelicals were objecting was a large picture, the image of St. Derfel, highly esteemed by the people in North Wales. Cromwell had been alerted to the saint by his monastic commissioners. There is an incident of Derfel Gadam within the said diocese, in whom the people have so great confidence, hope and trust, that they come daily on pilgrimage unto him, some with kine, other with oxen or horses, and the rest with money, insomuch that there was five or six hundred pilgrims to a man's estimation that offered to said image the fifth day of this present month of April. The image was esteemed because it was said that if you gave money or animals to the saint, Derfel would come and snatch you from hell itself. And it was prophesied that Derfel would set an entire forest on fire. For Cromwell, Cranmer, Latimer and the Evangelicals, this was the height of absurdity and obscenity, an example of the superstition and misplaced worship they were determined to wipe out, a contrip on honest people exercised by the church. While for Conservatives, here was one other object of beauty and hope and a saint to intercede in a world of uncertainty and suffering and to focus their worship. At this point, it was Cromwell who was in control of events, supported by a king who had brought the arguments against pilgrimage and image worship, with the added benefit, of course, that all these riches would come into his coffers. John Forrest was an observant friar, that is to say, a friar who stuck closely and rigorously to the original precepts of St Francis of Assisi. He had been imprisoned four years ago for denying the royal supremacy. On the 22nd of May, 1538, Cromwell had John Forrest brought to Smithfield for a great event, a show execution you might call it. Forrest would be burned. The image of St Derfel the Saint would be burned at the same time. So the people of London would come and watch. Here now was the chance to see the warlike saint armed with his sword and spear come down to London to save his image and his servant, snatch them both from the jaws of hell. And the people of London did indeed come, 10,000 of them, according to Hall, which seems a little bit unlikely, but you can at least, I think, imagine Smithfield Square in London bursting at the seams with aghast onlookers, a vast crowd hanging to every possible vantage point to see what they could see. What they would have seen was a stage built next to the scaffold where Forrest was tied. On the stage stood the Bishop of Worcester, Hugh Latimer, evangelical and firebrand, along with a panel of the great and the good, including the main man himself, Thomas Cromwell. Latimer had in fact recommended himself for this job. He was evidently well used to mocking the veneration of relics, and he took his job with evident enjoyment. If it be your pleasure that I should play the fool after my customary manner when Forrest shall suffer, I would wish my stage stood near to Forrest's. Latimer therefore preached for three hours, punctuated by exhortations to Forrest to repent. Forrest remained firm. If an angel should come down from heaven and show me any other thing than that I have believed all my lifetime, I would not believe him. Latimer arrived at the big moment. Theatrically, he announced that St. Derfel had been brought all the way from Wales to save the friar. The whole thing had been choreographed by Latimer and Cromwell, so it was Cromwell who now signalled six men to bring in the huge image. The crowd yelled, groaned with fear, animal excitement and anticipation. What would happen? With mocking, vicious drama, three executioners pretended to wrestle with the huge image and then tied it with chains to stop it escaping. Cromwell played along. 
My lord bishop, I think you strive in vain with this stubborn one, he roared, pointing at Forrest. It would be better to burn him. Forrest was lifted in a cradle of chains and swung out above the image of the saint and a pile of wood, and the whole thing was lit with torches. As the flames and the heat began to reach Forrest, he beat his breast and called out, Lord, have mercy upon me. As his flesh was burnt agonisingly raw, he reached for a ladder to pull himself out of the fire, but couldn't hold on. And for two hours he suffered in agony, while some of the crowd watched and cried in despair at Durfel's defeat, or celebrated the exposure of a wicked superstition. It's an extraordinary example of the brutality of this life, and the sheer force of religious feeling of the time. The burning of Durfel and John Forrest no doubt elicited many different responses at the time, from despair to triumph, but let me mention a few responses. The chronicler Edward Hall had absolutely no sympathy for the friar. As far as he was concerned, the man had whined far too much during his two-hour-long burning and shown a lamentable lack of joy at his appending arrival in the afterworld. For many Londoners, probably the most evangelical place in the country, this was simple confirmation of what they believed. A poem ran around the streets. But now what we may see, what gods they may be, even puppets, mormits and elves throw themselves down thrice. They cannot rise, not once to help themselves. And a wave of vandalism swept through churches as evangelicals took the law into their own hands. Back in Wales, however, the locals nodded sagely and noted that St. Durfel had indeed, as had been predicted, lit an entire forest. 1,500 years of Christianity had not managed to shift the belief in a mystical hidden world and it was going to take a bit more than the odd image burning to shake it now. Next week, the climax of the dissolution as the larger monasteries react to the growing pressure from the campaigns of 1537 and early 1538 and Henry himself gets involved in heresy trials. Until then, gentle listeners, thank you for listening, good luck and have a great week. Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.